Turn with me to Haggai. Haggai. That's behind Zephaniah and right in front of Zechariah, as if that helps you any. I want to just read here two verses of Scripture. Just the first two verses here in chapter 1. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheatil, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now the time in which this occurred was 15 years after, or over 15 years after, these people had been, de been delivered out of Babylonian captivity. And the general purpose of the book of Haggai is, is dealing with uh, reproving the children of Israel for not building the Lord's temple, for not building his house in that time that they had, over 15 years. But this book deals with a lot more than teaching us about a stick and stone temple. This book teaches us about how God builds his house, his spiritual house. It teaches us in and through whom God builds his house. It teaches us who it is that freely benefits from God's grace. And it teaches us who it is that will finally be exalted and glorified for building God's spiritual house. I want you to take a moment with me and let me give you a little history about these folks here. The children of Israel, to whom the Lord ministered here, were once in bondage in Israel, uh, in Babylon. And they became bondmen, bound men, in Babylon, because they disobeyed and transgressed God's word. They became free men, delivered out of Babylon, because God freely chose to deliver them out of captivity. We see a, a type of the free grace of God in choosing whom he will and delivering us out of captivity. And then God set them free, and he did it through his choice servant, King Cyrus. He sent his anointed, King Cyrus, to deliver these children out of bondage. And King Cyrus fulfilled the will of God, and he delivered them out of the Babylonian captivity. And in him we see a type of Christ, our Redeemer, the King of glory. And then God delivered these children into a new land. He took them back and put them in their own land. And he gave them liberty. He gave them great reason to rejoice and to worship and to 
take off building his house and just rejoicing in him. And then we see in that a, a great type of the Lord coming to us in power through his spirit, giving us great reason to rejoice when we see what all he's done for us. And they started out and they began working. And they were greatly zealous and they were happy and they rejoiced. Scripture says, Ezra says they rejoiced as one man. They were just united in one accord. And they built a foundation. They laid a foundation for the temple. But then some kings, some wicked kings that opposed them, came up against them. And they experienced some opposition. And they stopped building. They just stopped building. And that foundation that they had built, they had a makeshift altar. They continued to offer sacrifices on that makeshift altar, to come to that makeshift altar. But that foundation just sort of grew over with weeds and was just left neglected. And for over 15 years, it remained that way. Now, I know why the people didn't build. That question is obvious to me cause of unbelief. We'll see that as we go on. The question that occurred to me when I started to read and to study this book of Haggai was why'd the Lord wait? Why'd he wait over 15 years before he intervened? Well, I looked for that. I looked for that reason. And I think I found it in Isaiah chapter 30. You'll turn there with me. Now this is speaking to the fathers of these children. And he's speaking to them before they had gone into this Babylonian captivity. And this is what the Lord told them. In verse 15 of chapter 30. Thus saith the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. In returning and rest shall you be saved. That quite simply means in turning from your way and trusting me, you'll be saved. In quietness and in confidence shall be your strength, and you would not. But you said, no, we'll flee up on horses, therefore shall you flee. And you said, we will ride upon the swift, and therefore shall they that pursue you be swift. One thousand shall flee at the rebuke of one, and at the rebuke of five shall you flee, till you be left as a beacon upon the top of a mountain and as an ensign on a hill. You're going to be stripped like a tree stripped of all its branches, and you're going to be a sign on a high hill for all to see. Now look here at verse 18. And therefore... Among those people, the Lord had a remnant, and he's going to bring them out of Babylon. But here's what he says. This was long before they were delivered. He said, Therefore will the Lord wait, that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore will he be exalted, that he may have mercy upon you. For the Lord is a God of judgment. The Lord waits, and he told them he was going to wait for three reasons. 
Number one, that he may be gracious unto you, that he may have mercy on you. Quite simply, that means that he may discover to you your need of his grace and his mercy. Secondly, he said, I'm going to wait that he'll be exalted. Only when we see our need of grace and mercy will we see him high and lifted up and exalted. And he said, thirdly, and I'm going to wait because the Lord is a God of judgment. I'm going to do what's just and I'm going to do what's right. That's what he said. So let's take those three things and let's just look at these first two verses of Haggai here for a moment. God waits that he may be gracious and merciful to you. Now this 15 years have passed when these folks have sat here and had done one thing. But it says in verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king. Now there's some meaning to that. In the second year of Darius the king. From after the deliverance out of Babylon until this second year of King Darius, every king and every one in power that these people encountered opposed them building this temple. Everybody opposed it. Ezra says that enemies hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That includes all that time that they waited. One king said, I give you now commandment to cause these men to cease from this building and that this city be not builded until another commandment shall be given from me. So God, he waited. And all these kings frustrated their purpose and they couldn't, they couldn't build. They couldn't do anything. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't overcome their enemies. What was God teaching them through those wicked kings and those lawyers, those counselors? He's teaching them that they were helpless without him. He's teaching them they needed his grace and his mercy to overcome their enemies. He does the same thing when he teaches us through opposition. He teaches us that same thing. We need his grace and his mercy continually. Every hour we need it. I want you to look at Ezra with me just for a minute. Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. It says here in verse 5 that when these men came up in the second year of King Darius, when they started building, after the Lord came to them in power and they started building, it says... These men came up to oppose them again, these wicked kings did. And verse 5 says, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that these wicked kings couldn't cause them to cease building until this matter came to Darius the king. And then they returned answer by letter concerning the matter. These kings came up against them again, and God God wouldn't allow the building to stop until it came to the king. And then it came to the king, and then you look over here in chapter 6 and verse 7. Here's what the king Darius said in the second year. He said, you let the work of this house of God alone. You let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews build this house of God in his place. 
And he said, Moreover, I make a decree what you shall do to the elders of the Jews for the building of this house of God, that of the king's goods, even of the tribute beyond the river, river for with expenses be given unto these men, that they be not hindered. You see, he waited for over 15 years, and he came to them, and he, he held them in his power, and withheld these enemies, and he gave them into King Darius's hand, and gave it into King Darius's heart. And King Darius said, "Not only do I want these men to be left alone to build it, but then you're gonna give them everything out of the king's house to build it." You see how God provided for them? He provided everything they needed to build that house. So God waited till the second year. Now it says here in verse one, it says He waited in the sixth month. Why is that significant? The sixth month. Well, the sixth month is part of August and part of September. That's harvest time for them. It's harvest time. What had happened in every harvest prior to this one? What had happened? Look with me at Haggai chapter 2 and verse 16. He says, since those days were, since back, back yonder when all those days you've been waiting here for over 15 years, he said, when one would come to a heap of 20 measures, there were but ten. And when one would come to the press fat for to dry out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. Now, you picture this. These men were out there working in their fields, toiling all that time. And they were building, uh, uh, growing their crops. And they, in their mind, they're thinking, when we get enough crops, we get everything our storehouse is full and our press fat's full. Then we can start building this temple. We'll start building it. Once we get all that built up, we'll start building. Well, they'd, they'd work and they'd gather in the harvest and they'd bring it to the threshing floor and they'd put it on a threshing floor. And boy, it just looked like a big old heap, you know, there. It's going to be a bountiful harvest. And they start threshing it. They start threshing it. And when they get through, just enough there, wasn't even enough there to feed, feed any of them. It just wasn't enough there. And then they weary and they tired and they, they sweated and they plowed and they worked in the hot sun and nothing. It's, it's not done any, any good. So they go to the press fat to draw out some oil to cook what they got. Draw out a little wine to help them with their infirmities. For they've been working so hard. And they go to the press fat. They're thirsty and they're weary. And they go to draw out from it. And there's nothing to draw out from it. What's God teaching them? Teaching them all of their works. Everything that they've done. All of their works. Is chaff. It's not going to sustain them. They go to that press fat looking for the oil of gladness. And he said, I'm giving you the oil of gladness. You're not going to get it by the work of your own hands. I'm going to give it to you. Brought all their work to nothing. All their work to nothing. Over 15 long, slim harvest moons till they were brought low and hungry and naked and destitute and desperate. Then in the sixth month came the word of the Lord. See that? You see God's grace. And then it says in the first day of the month. And all I really want to say about that for sake of time is that 
It's a precise time that he came to him. He waited to the day to come to him. Remember when he came to Zacchaeus? He looked up in that tree and he said, Zacchaeus, come down. This day I must abide at your house. This day has salvation come to your house. It's a precise time. He's appointed the time precisely, precisely. Now you look with me over here. Then again, let's see. The second reason we said God waits is so that he will be exalted. Let's read this first one again. It says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord. This phrase, and others just like it, Thus saith the Lord, uh, so the Lord spoke. Thus came the word of the Lord. Other phrases like that. In two chapters, right here in this book, it's only two little short chapters, that phrase is used 27 times. That's what got me interested in this book. I kept reading it and I kept seeing that and I thought, it might be good for a man to listen up and see what, what's being said here. I don't think anybody but God's going to be exalted for building this house. After 27 times, he said, thus saith the Lord God. He's going to receive all the glory in building his house. Now let's look here and let's consider the three offices that the Lord uses to do this work. First of all, in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now I've read about some of the writers, and they say Haggai was among the youngest of the prophets at, at that time. There wasn't anything about him that would cause the people to put any stock in what he said. He's a young man. And you think, he's coming to these people. And Haggai's given a message of the Lord. And that message is, you say it's not time to build. Yet you got time for your own houses. And this Lord's house is lying waste. I don't think people are going to take too kindly to a man saying that, do you? But you remember this statement. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. The Lord Jesus Christ came to this earth. He's the prophet. And his message was, you got time for your own house, for your flesh, and for you exalting yourself. And you're not looking to God. You're not looking to God. He's the prophet. Christ is the prophet. So that's first off we see the one he's using is Christ, a picture of Christ the prophet. Now look here again in verse 1. It says, And this word came not only by Haggai the prophet, but it came unto Zerubbabel. He's the governor of Judah. Now, Zerubbabel was the one on whom the government of Israel, and Judah particularly, rested. If the if if the Babylonian government had any problems at all, that wicked empire, if it had any problems at all with the children of Israel, it had to go through Zerubbabel because he's the governor of Israel. It would all come down on him. And if the children of Israel had any matters that concerned them that needed to be dealt with, Zerubbabel was the one that had to take care of it. It all came to him. It rested on his shoulders. Remember this scripture? Spoken of our Lord, the government 
shall be on his shoulders. The government of this wicked world and the enemies of Christ and the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people came down on him. They came down on him. Marred him more than any other man. Did awful, terrible things to him. But worse than that, brethren, the government of Israel, the government of God's people, the government of God's justice and mercy rested on his shoulders. That God might be just. That his law and his holiness be upheld and his justice be fulfilled and yet him be justifier and show mercy. It rested on the governor. So you see there we got the prophet. Now we got the, the king, the governor. There's a verse in Zechariah. I won't read it to you. I'll just tell you. But it says that Zerubbabel is going to bring the last headstone for this temple, crying grace, grace unto it. And he's going to set the last headstone on this house. And the people are going to praise and say, Zerubbabel built that house. What does the Lord say about his people? You're, a, you're, you're the temple of the Lord. You're his building. You're spiritual stones built up, a spiritual house. And Christ Jesus, the governor, the king, is going to bring that last stone, that last elect chosen believer, crying grace, grace unto him, and put him right there in that building, and then it'll be complete. You see that? You see that? In the last chapter here of this, too, it says, the Lord said, I'm going to take you, Zerubbabel, in the day when I shake the heavens and the earth and I overthrow the kingdoms. And hey, I'm going to destroy everything. In that day, saith the Lord, verse 23, I'm going to take thee, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Sheatil, saith the Lord, and I'm going to make thee as a signet, for I've chosen thee, saith the Lord of hosts. You know what a signet is? It's a, it was a ring or a seal on a man's hand that gave him the right as the king to do what he will. And he said, I'm going to set you up as a signet. You're going to be the, the righteousness by which I'm the plumb line, in other words, the signet. That never happened in Zerubbabel's day. That never happened to Zerubbabel. But it happened to the one of whom Zerubbabel was a type, to Christ Jesus the Lord. It will happen. He's going to set him up and exalt him. His son's going to be exalted in that day when he shakes the heavens and the earth. And then look again the third office here. It says, It came to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and it came to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This one whose name means Savior, who was the representative of the people before God, whose job it was to offer gifts and sacrifices for the people before God, and whose job it was to have compassion on the ignorant, for he too was touched with the feeling of their infirmities. That's our great high priest, Christ Jesus the Lord, who entered into the holiest of holies, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. Not, not having to offer a sacrifice for himself, because he was without spot, without blemish. But he entered into the throne room of God, and for once and for all offered a sacrifice for his people. By one offering hath he perfected, for, he's perfected forever his people. 
and he has compassion on his people. He knows when to give them, when to give it, what to give, when they need it, how they need it. And that's who's pictured here in, these, in this high priest. So we got the prophet, the priest, and the king. And anytime God's going to do anything, he's going to do it through his son, the prophet, priest, and king, that he may be exalted and receive all the glory. You see that? All the glory. So then we come to the third reason. The third reason. And the third reason was God waits. Let me, let me say one more thing before we get to that. Is anybody else going to be exalted in this building? He's going to use the people to build it. But are the people going to be glorified? Let me, let me tell you what the people said. Look here at verse 2. He said, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts. This people say the time's not come the time that the Lord's house should be built. They probably had some reasons for saying what they were saying. You know, maybe the 70 years prophesied by Jeremiah hadn't yet come to pass. Maybe it hadn't reached that full 70 years. Maybe that was the reason they waited. Man will use God's own word to justify his rebellion. Perhaps it was the opposition, this opposition. Perhaps they said, well, this, we're getting this opposition, so that obviously means that it's not the Lord's will for us to build this temple right now. Man has used God's honor, a pretense of God's honor, to justify his slothfulness. Perhaps it was their own houses that justified them. Perhaps they used their own houses and said, well, now wait a minute. We've just been delivered. When we get all our own houses in order, and we, we built up our own houses, then we'll start the work of this building. God said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and these other things will be added to you. See how backwards our thinking is by nature? Perhaps they wanted to save up first, get those storehouses full and all that like we talked about, you know, and then they do the building. Do we bring our righteousnesses to God or do we come empty-handed? Do we wait and say, well, I'm going to wait till I clean up my act a little bit. I'm going to wait till I, I'm not quite such a bad sinner. I'm going to wait till I've, you know, got a little more obedient. Then I'm going to come to Christ. Oh, you come empty-handed. Empty-handed. Maybe they didn't feel like they had enough people to build this temple. That scripture says they didn't have but 42,360 people. Plus they had 7,337 servants. God don't use people. He willed down Gideon's army until there wasn't anything left of them so that they couldn't exalt themselves in it. I've seen it happen in Franklin, Tennessee, brethren. He did it so that can't, we can't praise anybody for what he's done but him. And that's what he does. But these excuses for not building this temple of sticks and stones, that's just an example of excuses that men give for not trusting Christ alone, for not trusting him. And you see, these people were left for over 15 years and they didn't come. They wouldn't build. They wouldn't do anything. But now let me show you this. They still had plenty of time and money and resources in their own minds for their own houses. 
They had plenty to do for that, for that purpose, but nothing to do for, for God's temple. Don't you see that? Don't you see that as being how, what we are unless God intervenes? Unless He comes in irresistible grace? We got time for this flesh. We got time to heap treasure upon treasure upon treasure. But unless God comes, <laughs> unless He comes to us and reveals that we need His grace and mercy and exalts Himself to us, we're without hope. Without hope. Well, then it says thirdly, we talked about this, that God waits because He's the God of judgment. God is the just judge throughout heaven and earth, and He'll judge the world in righteousness and strict strict judgment that we can't comprehend one day those that are left those that have never bowed to Christ are going to be judged righteously judged but in dealing with those that he's determined to save God does what's right and what's just and what's good for his glory and honor and for your good he always does that this is what Jeremiah said. He said, O Lord, correct me, but with judgment, not in thine anger, lest thou bring me to nothing. God's going to rebuke his children, and he's going to rebuke them sternly at times, but he rebukes them fatherly. He's going to correct them firmly, but lovingly. Psalm, psalmist said, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. And he'll guide his affairs with discretion. Our God is the good man. The God man. And he shows favor and he lends. lends but he guides his affairs with discretion. With judgment. He's got a judgment. He does it in conversion. Remember Gomer? Now I'll discover to her her lewdness. I'm going to take away the oil and the wine and the wool and the flax. Take all that away. Bring her down to nothing. He does it in trials. He teaches us, doesn't he, through trials. Peter, Peter learned that. You found Peter saying, Lord, I won't ever forsake you. I won't ever forsake you. And you find him drawing out the sword. And, and then next thing you know, he's fled the Lord and he's gone off and he's just, he's departed. And then you find him later on. After he's been grown in grace a little bit, you find him cast into prison. And you find him there in prison, and the, the, the king pronounced that he's going to die the next day. And you find Peter there, laying there just sound asleep. Just sound asleep. And the Lord came and brought him right out of prison. That's growing in grace. That Peter before would have been right banging on the bars and saying, I want out of here, let me out of here. But Peter said, I just. I just take my rest. The Lord's going to... If, if these people kill me, if he kills me tomorrow, all he's done is delivered me into the hand of my God where I can sit at his feet forever. <laughs> and he does it... He, he, he does it in his return. He's long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Simply meaning, brethren, he's going to wait till that last headstone had been put in place till he's brought that last redeemed son of his precious everlasting love into the fold and then he's going to wind it up 
You consider the long suffering of God to be salvation because he's waiting. Paul said, I'm a pattern of that. Paul said, I was, boy, I had all these things I was boasting of and I was running headlong and thought I was righteous and by all these Hebrew of Hebrews and all these things and God brought him down. All that time God waited till that day and brought him down. And what's the result of this thing that God does? We said he's going to wait that he may be gracious and merciful to his people. He's going to wait that he might be exalted and receive all the glory from his people. And he's going to wait that we might see him as right and just and the God of judgment. You know what that is? That's the peaceable fruit of righteousness. That's the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Just see God as he is. Now, what's the result going to be? Turn back over to Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30. And look there in verse 18. He said, I'm going to do all this and I'm going to wait that I be exalted because I'm a God of judgment. And then he ends that verse and he says, Blessed are all they that wait for him. For the people shall dwell in Zion at Jerusalem. Thou shalt weep no more. If you wait, that simply means you trust Him. If you can trust Him, if you trust Him, it's because you've been blessed. That's what He means there when He said, Blessed are they that wait. Because they've, been, they've seen His grace. They've seen Him exalted. They see He's a God of judgment. They've been blessed. And they just wait. And He said, The people, I'm going to do all this. And you're going to wait on me. And you're going to trust me. Because the people are going to dwell in Zion. My people are going to be brought home. I'm going to build this building. I'm going to finish the building. I'm going to build it. And there's going to be no more weeping. You see that? You see, isn't that just a beautiful picture of how our God <laughs> saves his people and builds up his house? And I just, oh boy, I love it. We get anxious and we get carried away and we get to want things to happen in our time, but it's just always best for it to happen in God's time. Just always 